Guys, this is an episode that Stephen Ranella, the Meat Eater, over at the Meat Eater podcast on episode 123, was talking with the Sportsman's Alliance guys. And on this episode 123, they get into uh, talking about Arizona and the recent wildcat potential ban um, when uh, that erupted HSUS. Anyway, this is going to be a good episode, I think, from a third party explaining a little bit about some of the issues uh, that us as sportsmen uh, face. And I think Steve did a great job, as always, kind of going through the issues. And um, these guys are buddies of mine. Steve and Giannis are buddies of mine. And I asked them for permission to play this Arizona portion talking about uh, the HSUS, this latest um, potential threat that we have as sportsmen. And I, I, I think it's important that uh, the sportsmen pick up in this episode that, you know, we all have to stay together. And just because this was an Arizona issue uh, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned about issues. You, you'll hear if you listen to the whole episode uh, over at their uh, website, uh, the Meat Eater uh, dot com, uh, you'll understand that there was a big fight in Maine. There's fights in lots of different states, and us as sportsmen need to support everybody across the board. So even if you're, you know, you're not even a lion hunter, but you're a deer hunter, the lion hunter hunting directly affects the deer hunting. Um, if you're, you're you're not up on predator issues or what have you, it may affect the elk hunting in Colorado or or in Montana, or what have you. So anyway, this is a great episode. Meat Eater guys do a phenomenal job. Make sure to go to their website, uh, themeateater.com. Go to their podcast. Check out their TV show, uh, their Instagram page. You can also listen and subscribe to their podcast on iTunes. Okay, the the lion, bobcat, (laughs) jaguar... Issue in (laughs) Ocelot. Yeah, tell this story, because this is a new one. Arizona. So, I mean, the story is is, going to be very familiar to the main black bear story, right? I mean, it's it's a ballot initiative being pushed by the main state of the United States. It was supposed to be in the midterm elections or coming up in the— supposed to be on this fall's ballot. This November November ballot. Um, That was the intention. Uh, They didn't qualify the issue. There there was some stuff done in Arizona to to help them not qualify the issue. Uh, But it followed the same script. It followed the same same pathway, right? They tried legislation. They weren't weren't able to do it. They started creating a PR campaign to kind of push push a ban on, on these protected cat species. Of which, really, the mountain lions were the target. Obviously, the rest were either already protected or didn't exist in Arizona. Those kinds of things. Yeah, it's funny. So they were. It was about mount. Like, if you look at the the early rhetoric, it was about mountain lions. Right. Like they, they had a thing like the five most dangerous states to be a mountain lion. Yeah. Arizona so, was one of them. Colorado was one. Correct. Yep, Montana, yeah. Idaho. I think Utah. Utah. And Utah. Yeah. So that came on the heels of the Cecil the Lion stuff in Africa, right? Right on the right after, right after that kind of fervor died down. HSUS released the report called The Five Deadliest States for Mountain Lions, and they had some junk science in there and some stuff that just doesn't make sense. Uh, and they started pushing this PR campaign that we need to protect America's lion. They called it America's lion. Yeah. And pardon my interruption, but, Brian, you um, pointed out that those are like the five states where mountain lions are doing the best. Yeah. yeah it's, it's got the best habitat and the best harvest. So, yeah, that's a good thing. But they, again, view it as it's the deadliest thing. Yeah, and so they flip it. And if you looked at their report, I'm using air quotes, um, 
it compared a 10-year harvest statistic to a one-year population statistic. So if you're the media looking, you're like, oh, my God, they're killing all of the lions out there. Oh, I guess. You know, and then they, you know, America, the top five deadliest states, as journalists and somebody who's worked in that world, lists are great things. People love it, especially for online consumption. So that got picked up by everybody and spread and they, all around. And they didn't include that, the, like, for instance, that Colorado has vastly more yeah. lions than ever before right yeah. now? No, oh, no, no, they're not going to include that stuff. It's just that emotional reason to take it away. But what was fun about it, they were talking about, it was like a mountain lion issue, but they made it like an all-cat issue. And I think to extra confuse the situation is they included that it would be a ban on hunting or trapping for things that aren't in Arizona. The Canadian lynx. The Canadian lynx, which has never been documented in Arizona. And they threw in, like, jaguars, which are federally protected. Yeah, mm -hmm. and ocelots, yeah. Same that are already federally protected. There's maybe, it would, I think that most people would be shocked if they were to learn that at this second right now, there's more than, I mean, 10 is probably a big number for how many jaguars yeah. would be in Arizona. It might be closer to one or two. Yeah. But... It's just like a fun little twist to put that in there. Well, yeah, they, they, they can manipulate the media then. Then they can go after that emotional argument and say, they're killing endangered endangered cats. We want to stop this, you know, make sure to protect these endangered cats. And so, well, yeah, okay. Well, they're already protected. But or, this is taking or the next not step. even there at all. Or not even present. <laughs> well, the, the, the unique unifying factor of all five of those states that are the five deadliest, they're all five ballot issue states. They're all states where they get the, uh, the ability to... Uh, bring a ballot initiative if they want. Yeah, so it's uh, all five of those states are, are states that that gives them the pathway forward to bring a ballot initiative, just like they did in Maine. You mean the way the state constitution set up? Yep. Okay. Yeah. It gives them the ability to, to put an issue before voters, um, where some states don't allow that. Some states don't have uh, direct access to the ballot. So you feel that the the like the, the cat hunting ban in Arizona was an HSUS-led situation, though they didn't do it under their own name in Arizona. Yeah, but it definitely was. I mean, we have mm -hmm. the application that has their name on it with the HSUS email address when they registered it for the ballot. Mm -hmm. But what was the group they created to, to spearhead it? Arizonans for, oh, it's Wildcats, something Wildcats. Arizona's for wildlife, maybe. No, um, it was Wildcats. Wild, it was Wildcats, yeah. But that's what they do. They create a front group, and they have their state leader their state HSUS leader becomes the chairperson mm -hmm. and then they gather around that and they make, make it, it feel local and make it yep. feel local. It's not, I mean, they, it was 98% of their funding was something like 98% of their funding was directly from Washington DC HSUS headquarters. Okay. They just strike that pen. And to get it on the ballot, to bring it in front of the voters, you, to bring it in front of the voters, you have to cross a threshold. Signature gathering threshold, yeah. Signature gathering. What's that look like? So in most states, there's two ways you can qualify an issue, right? You can, you can convince the legislature to pass a bill by a wide enough margin that that'll directly put it on the ballot. Or you can go out and collect signatures and meet a certain threshold of valid signatures, meaning the signature come from a person who lives in that county or lives in that legislative district. Typically, those, those vary wildly, right? You know, in Maine, it was much smaller. It's a much smaller state. In Arizona, it was... 150,000 valid signatures in that ballpark. So what you're typically looking at is you'll see the other side try to get above and beyond that because they know some of those signatures are going to be invalidated. They won't be from actual voters. They'll have the wrong address, those kinds of things. Only 150,000. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's shockingly low in a lot of these states what, it, what, what the, the threshold is to place a ballot uh, measure 
before the voters. Because, I mean, there's, what, three million some people in Phoenix, right? Phoenix. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So what happened when? The, so so they start gathering the signatures, but they didn't. They didn't hit the threshold. They pulled out. They didn't. They they they, they had some issues. Uh, I'll, I'll give a lot of credit to the sportsmen down there. Uh, they they organized together pretty well. Um, they came up with a game plan to to defeat this thing, uh, and they ran their game plan. And they were successful. We went down and met with those guys uh, early on before the the ballot initiative was even um, uh, launched. Tell them, look, we we're we're seeing the the tea leaves here. We can see the smoke. There, there's a there's a fire coming, right? You know, they've released this report. They've highlighted these states. If you look at the five states, we feel like Arizona and Colorado are probably the two most likely uh, targets. Because of Phoenix and Denver? Because of Phoenix and Denver, because we just gotten off the heels of winning the trapping issue in Montana, the ballot issue in Montana in 2014. So just a year after that, so we've already got a kind of a campaign infrastructure left up there. Uh, Utah has some constitutional protections against wildlife-related ballot measures. Uh, we just looked at those kind of two states with the demographic shift that they've seen over the last 10 and 15 years, uh, the, where the populations are located. You look at Arizona, that's a tough place to do a, a ballot measure. 78% of the households in Arizona, the TV households, the viewing public, are in the Phoenix media market. So you're playing for one media market. That drives costs way up. Okay. So, you know, we, we look at these states, you can kind of, you can kind of predict where you think the other side's going to go, and they're looking at their own data, and they're looking at their own plans and campaign ideas and trying to figure out where they're going to go. Um, but yeah, the guys down there did a great job. They put together a campaign plan that was designed to try to put up roadblocks to keep them off the ballot. Um, ultimately, the other side didn't hire a signature gathering firm. They were unable to do so, and that 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 drastically hurt their their effort. Unable to do so for what reason? So there's only a limited number of signature gathering firms in Arizona, and and, and the, the sportsmen were working with one of them already, and so that precluded them from working for the other side. And so what you're what you're dealing with then is you have to bring in a signature gathering firm from another state. And that's not unusual, right? When when they qualified the bear issue in Maine in 2014, HSUS used a group out of California to come up and do it. But in Arizona, there's a little bit higher threshold. This, okay, you're getting into stuff now that raises all kinds yeah. of questions. <laughs> no, no in, in the best possible way. Signature gathering firms. I mean, yeah. there are companies that specialize in getting legitimate signatures to move ballot initiatives. There's companies that make a ton of money doing that. Just tons of money doing they that. They just run the logistics. Yep. Do they run the media? No, no, typically not. Typically you see that done by other consultants, but typically these guys are in the business for, for, for qualifying issues, and Just every state's got them. Guns for hire. Yep. They go out there and hire, and you pay, some states you pay by the signature, and that's the interesting thing in Arizona, right? So Arizona passed a law that said you no longer can pay by the signature. So instead of saying, you know, for every signature that, that you get, we'll give you a dollar. And you, you don't, you're not paying a salary, you're not paying an hourly wage, you're just saying for every valid signature you get, we're going to give you a dollar or two dollars or whatever the case might be. In Arizona, you have to be an hourly employee. So that, that creates a level of infrastructure that okay. an organization has to have to be able to have those people be employees. You know, you got to do tax forms, you got to do this stuff, and you got to have HR and payroll and health care and all, all kinds of stuff, right? It's a little bit different standard than a lot of states. A lot of states don't require you to be an hourly employee. And so that created a little bit more of a barrier and reduced the number of potential firms down to just a handful okay and, and so uh, I, you know my 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 opinion is that, that the other side got a late start on actually talking to these firms right they thought it was gonna be an easier time to qualify than it was they felt like they could do a better job with volunteers than they did and uh you know you, one thing leads to another and you run out of time and so they wound up having volunteers go out and set up out in front of a whole foods yep what have you yep i mean to pull 
pick them out, but I just know that that was a place they were doing a signature <laughs> gathering. And the zoo and wherever else, sure. yeah. Sure. And, Festivals, and a volunteer goes out there and starts gathering signatures. Yeah. Do you want to protect these endangered cats from being slaughtered by, you know, cruel hunters? And yeah. how many how many signatures did they hit? Uh, we don't know. Don't know, because they never submitted them, right? So they, they could have had 5,000. They could have had 120,000. The fact that they, they, they suspended their campaign leads you to believe they didn't have very many. Because they didn't even they didn't even submit the signatures to the state. They didn't they never crossed the threshold. Of, they didn't come back and say we've got, you know, ten percent more than we need, and we didn't get enough valid. It was an issue where they didn't have enough to even submit the the minimum threshold. So okay. if every single signature that they had was a valid signature, and they gave them to the state, you'd have to hit on a hundred percent to get the issue qualified. It wasn't even that they didn't have enough to even submit the base level signatures. How could how in the case of Arizona, how were sportsmen? How are you, how do you battle that? Because there's there's nothing to battle yet. It's just like a, all they're doing is they just have people out getting signatures. Yeah. Are, you, are you playing like a like a like a PR game? If you play a, to, to to game these 150 thousand people that they they need to. Sure, there's there's different methods. There's different um, tactics you can use, right? Obviously, there's the main method, which was um, Maine as the state, which is, is is a campaign you're planning where you're basically raising a bunch of money to fund a TV advertising campaign. That because you know the issue is going to qualify. Saying don't sign. Well, no, in Maine it was it was don't vote for it. Yeah, in but, Arizona, but yeah. in Arizona, what they went for was a decline to sign campaign, right? So they, they they did a bunch of PR around the idea of don't sign this thing. It's not what it is uh, pretended or uh, portrayed to be. It's an outside group from D.C. It's not a, a local Arizona group. So they did a bunch of PR stuff like that. Do you think that was effective? It it can be. It can be. It certainly because um, you know, it seems the threshold's so low. Yeah, the hundred fifty thousand vote threshold is so low that you wouldn't that that you would get it from just that you'd find like the the you'd have enough like radical fringe people to account for the sure yeah you know I, I think it it was successful this time you know there's some other stuff in there like like I said with the paid signature yeah, gathering yeah. issues and some of the other things the campaign tried to do and the HSUS had a sex scandal that's what yeah, I was gonna say yeah, let's not forget the internal turmoil they had right at this time you know right uh, around Christmas first of the year they had uh, Wayne Pacelli get yeah. get caught up in the Me Too movement and the sexual harassment and that's the last thing you want on a PR campaign is you're trying to go out there and do this when the other side can start pointing back and diverting you know but something to think about is right about that time they stroked a $500,000 check for the campaign. So they've suspended this campaign, but it's still structurally there mm -hmm. with almost a half a million dollars in it. They can reignite at any time. So it, it's plausible. I mean, we'll never know what really happened. It's plausible that they hit up against a sexual scandal, just had to pull rain, everybody retract. back in. We'll, 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 we'll regroup. Try, try again later. Yeah. Well, when you come back with a, with a longer timeline to get the signatures gathering done, you get a you get a firm lined up. You know, you, you do the stuff up front. It, it's it, it's a it's a short term victory. It's a good victory. Oh, we shouldn't belittle the idea that they were able to keep them off the ballot this year. But the question now turns to what does the future look like? What does it look like in 2020 or 2022 if they come back? What are we going to do to stop them a second time yeah. if they have a longer timeline? If they decide to throw instead of five hundred thousand dollars at it, or if they throw two million dollars at the qualification effort, you know, what are we going to do in in the meantime to protect ourselves uh, against that future attack? And that's what hurts us as hunters a lot. Is I mean, they're a hundred and fifty million dollar organization; they can stroke that check no problem. Yeah. It's not a big deal. And our boots on the ground in individual states were all kind of fragmented. And for you know one state group of hunters to come up with one or two million dollars uh, within a, a short period of time 
It's a tough deal, and that's where they're taking this is the ballot in a money fight. And they've got it because they've got grannies throwing $10 checks at them for saving puppies that they're so, not saving. You know, to use Maine as the example, right? I mean, we just talked about it. It came up once, then incubated a little bit longer, came up again. Um, the Arizona example. So, it, I mean, what is, I mean, is there uh, educational campaign going on in the interim or to you know both on the public and on the hunting side of things or how does that play out because if this 500k is sitting in the bank waiting to drop in what what is the proactive side of this from the sportsman's angle so there's a lot of stuff you can do obviously the pr side of it's important you know having that messaging out there talking to the general public about you know, why these species need to be managed, why the appropriate management is done by the state wildlife agency. Um, you know, a lot of it is, is, is a reactionary game though, right? That's the, that's the great challenge of an organization like ours. We don't know what the issue is going to be next year that we're going to work on. I can give you a pretty good idea of what I think the fights are coming, but the other side really, uh, really controls the agenda in, in a lot of regards, right? They get to decide where and when they launch these attacks. So it might not be, it might not be Arizona next time. It might be Colorado. It might be Denver. You know, they might decide to go up and, and, and launch our campaign there. They might do both states at once. You know, we don't, we don't really know that. So from our side, it's, it's really tough to kind of project and predict, you know, well, if you just do X, Y, and Z for the next year, you'll be fine in Arizona. Well, they might not come back to Arizona. It might be 10 years before they come back to Arizona. But what the next attack might be in, in Colorado. And by and large, sportsmen don't like to think about these issues, right? Absolutely. No. We just want to be out there hunting, fishing, doing our thing. But this stuff pops up. We get motivated when the boogeyman's there. But Immediate threats. But mm -hmm. if they're gone, all right, good. When's deer season coming up? <laughs> oh, we got 100 days? Cool. You've yeah. been shooting? How's it going? You know, that's, we forget about these things and move on. And it's a bigger issue in the industry. We're talking about it, you know, right after Cecil, there was a lot of different uh, people brought together to talk about how to be proactive and keep the next Cecil line from happening. And this goes back to our messaging is... How do you run an education campaign someplace? I mean, the messaging we get into in a ballot initiative is very specific, trapping on public lands in Montana and what's going to move the needle there. How do you apply that to hunting in general across the nation? I mean, and you don't know what which attack and it's going to be. Is it predators? Is it prey animals? What's it going to be? So it's that's a, a great... It's a great point, right? Because you can you can public opinion poll people and ask them, who do you believe should be the primary managers of wildlife? And overwhelmingly, people will tell you the state wildlife agency. They should make the decisions on seasons and bag limits and this kind of thing, right? You can also ask them, do you want to ban black bear hunting over bait? And they'll tell you overwhelmingly yes. In their mind, they separate the two issues, right? You can ask them those questions back to back, and you'll see a, dispar uh, a disparity between the two answers. And so general education, general, you know, I, general campaigns that just just espouse the benefits of hunting and, and and talk about the you know the benefits to wildlife and to populations and all this kind of thing certainly there's a help there how do you quantify what that help is when it comes down to a specific ballot initiative it's much more difficult to do that and then hunters have a tendency to be really provincial yep where you tend to view when i say you hunters tend to view what they do in their act, what like how they hunt, where they hunt, as the acceptable norm, yep. mm -hmm. and they don't really view themselves as being players in a large national 
picture. That's right. Hunting is very regional. It's very cultural. It's very different, right? You used the example a few episodes ago of, of the deer dog hunters in the south. A guy runs through the woods up here with a pack of dogs after some deer. It's going to get some You're going to get shot <laughs> by a deer hunter. You'll be shot by a deer hunter. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the cultural norm down there. That's that's the practice. That's the way they've always done it. And so those, I mean, just a few states over, those 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 cultures can shift greatly. And so you try, you know, we talk about 14 million hunters or 12 million hunters as this collective group. But it's a collective group of, 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 of individual practices and individual cultures and individual, you know, morals and ethics and, 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 and heritages. That's what I think. It's like it's. Well, it, it almost I was going to make a point, but I, I'm going to also then talk about why my point's not really doesn't really matter. What I was going to say is if you look at like a Wisconsin deer hunter. OK, so he's in he's in part of a traditional use practice. Hunting Wisconsin, where he's sitting in the ground blind in the corner of a field on the back 40. And he hears about, oh, they're going to ban the use of, of dogs for hunting deer down in South Carolina. It's hard to get that guy in Wisconsin to be like, man, I should probably pay attention to this. That's right. Because this is a broader thing that will, in my lifetime, come around to involve me. That's right. Um, it's hard to get him to feel it, but it's also hard to get him to be effective if he, if he does feel it because these things are playing out on the state level. But then you have a group like the HSUS, which is this national organization based in D.C., but they are going out and fighting these little fights, mm -hmm. these Death little fight. localized particular fights. So it's almost like hunters, fishermen, trappers need to become more interested in like gaming on the national scale and being more proactive and view and, and take the same approach, right? That we're going to wage small, isolated small isolated fights in support of this bigger thing that we're involved in in our own local way so i view it like this right you, you have to find and this is this is the struggle for us as an organization to grow and to find those members who care enough because you're talking about somebody you have to you have to have them believe in the greater good because they're not going to have an issue in their backyard every single year yeah you know if you, if you have a hunter in california versus a hunter in texas you think one's going to be more concerned about the anti-hunting community than the other? Absolutely. Yeah. So how do you convince that deer hunter from Texas to care about a black bear issue in Maine? You know, these these issues, these transcend state lines, you know, that you got to go fight the battles where the battles are. You know, otherwise, their battles are going to show up in your backyard pretty soon. Yeah, like a guy in Texas sends money to the Sportsman's Alliance. He looks at where that money gets spent. It's probably not getting spent in Texas. Not, off, not, not that often, you know, but that's that's the issue, right? I mean, you either have to fight the battles where they are today or or – they're going to show up here eventually. Yeah. You see these things spread, right? You've seen you've seen trapping issues spread. You've seen the bear issues spread. You've seen the application of the, these ESA policies spread. You know, if you don't take them on when they come up, you're just you're just opening the door for for issues ten, fifteen, twenty years down the road. You guys bring this up a lot in your publications. Is that once they win one win, mm -hmm. it, it just sets the precedent. It's a springboard, and, and, and yeah. so they just go in everywhere and going, look, we won here on this by you know these reasons in maine so why would you decide any differently and yeah it's a springboard the other it's, 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 a, it's opportunity to point so you guys aren't doing as well as they are yeah you need to raise your standards you have to do better and you play one side off against the other and we know that wildlife management is vastly different from 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 montana to florida there's vastly different issues vastly different challenges but for them they're going to point them and say they're not they're not com they're not comparable yeah that's what the heritage argument for me i always cringe when it comes up because man there's nobody in this room that couldn't shoot 
a lot of holes through a heritage argument. Oh, yeah. Um, I see all the holes in it, but I also it also means something to me. It does because yeah. you are a hunter. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. That's the emotional side. And if side. we're talking to hunters, like, yeah, we can get hunters when that threat is immediate to jump on and, and get active uh, a lot of the times. But, you know, it's it's to me the management side of things – you know, pumping up our biologists and look at the science is is the win. But you know, how do you make that sexy enough for people to come out and say, "Yeah, that is this is what makes more sense than." Unf- yeah, un- I think unfortunately it's not always possible. It's yeah. not always possible to sexify. Is that a word? It's not always possible <laughs> to to sexify wildlife. The complexities of wildlife management. Okay, I got two more questions for you guys. Um, one, how do you weigh out, okay, you're defending hunting, trapping, fishing practices, but how do you weigh out what might seem to be a restriction? Um, how do you weigh out like where it's coming from? And for instance, in, in your newsletter, there's a sum up of legal activities going on and you had a sum up of. What state? Um, um, you had some up in, in Minnesota, for instance, where there's a, a, a bill that would expand the definition of a muzzleloader to include a scope. Okay. And someone might look and be like, okay, great, because that's like, I, I don't know, it's, it's like increasing efficacy of muzzleloaders which one might proceed to be good for hunters because it increases efficacy and lets you do a better job. But we know in the case of when states started to adopt muzzleloader seasons, it was an add-on season. So it was a way to increase opportunity for hunters to be out in the field. What was interesting about muzzleloaders is they have low efficacy. So you could have your general firearm season where you're going to kill the vast majority of of the deer that you're going to kill. But then you could have these add-on 10-day, two-week, three-week muzzleloader seasons. And because of the weather, because of the difficulty of using muzzleloaders, you knew that it wasn't going to be a great additive sense in deer mortality. So you could increase opportunity for people who wanted to go hunt. They can spend more time in the woods. Everyone's a winner. It's not going to have a dramatic effect on your deer herd, right? So that's what gave us muzzleloader seasons. So when we look, when a group comes in and says, when a state agency comes in and defines a muzzleloader in a particular way to have low efficacy, and then someone wants to move to be like, well, I want to put a scope on top of mine. How, how do you weigh it out? Because you might view it as being, well, that's an unnecessary regulation. That's like Big Brother telling you how to hunt. But it might be like, well, the reason we can have a muzzleloader season is because they have low efficacy. And if you increase the efficacy through technology, you're negating the whole reason of having the muzzleloader season. But it seems to be in your newsletter, you, were, you feel that this is a good thing to be able to add a scope to a muzzleloader. So how do you weigh that out? Because this is not coming from the animal, right? This isn't like an animal rights community issue. This is a game management issue. Well, it's certainly much more uh, clear-cut when it is an animal rights issue, right? So when, when, it, when it is a state issue like this, you typically look to the sportsmen in the state to educate them and, and, and let them advocate for themselves. But you've, you've hit on the important kind of distinction here is that, yeah, there's the balance on the, on the biological side, which the state is going to look at anyways when it, when it manages deer herds and, and, and tries to project what that will do to the increase the take 
uh, during the muzzleloader season. But what also does it do on the opportunity side? You know, we've got a declining hunting population in this country. It's an endemic problem that we've been dealing with for, for multiple decades now. Um, you know, and so you have to kind of balance the idea of opportunity and access with the idea of, you know, are we, are we using a season that was originally intended for, for maybe something a little bit different than it is used for now? Are we going to change that by, by putting a scope on a muzzleloader? I don't know that there's a clear answer to it, right? I mean, I don't know that there's, you know, you can draw a clear line in the sand. You know, for us as an organization, we tend not to delve too deeply into those issues, right? Yeah, you know, yeah I don't, I don't mean to, I, yeah, I, I should be fair there that this is not a marquee issue for you. Right. Right. Well, it's like, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's like the debate over bows and crossbows and whether crossbows should be in, in the traditional archery season, you know, bow seasons, or whether they should have their own season or whether they should be with firearms. For us as an but I feel, but that debate I feel is a, is a hunter debate. It is like yes. that debate is being carried out by hunters. It's not being carried out by hunters versus anti hunters. Often not right. That, absolutely right. So do you weigh in on those issues where it's hunters debating something? No, not typically, right? Because we're a small organization. We're a lean organization. We don't have a huge staff, right? We're we're one of the smaller organizations in the conservation space. You know, you look at some of these groups, RMEF and Turkey Federation. All these guys we partner with do great work. But they're massive organizations compared to ours. So for us, you know, we, ha- we have to fight the fights that are, are, are core to our mission. Our mission is to protect, you know, hunters from the anti-hunting and animal rights movement. Yeah. Um, you know, so certainly where, where you have hunters united in, 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 in unison on an issue, muzzleloaders or crossbows or, or whatever the case might be in a state, we might be able to provide some support to that issue. We're typically not getting in, into the sportsman versus sportsman debate on these things because we just don't have the bandwidth. Yeah. You know, we, we, we have our hands full with, with these lawsuits, with these ballot measures and these legislative issues in the states. And if we could get to the point where we, we got done dealing with all the animal rights and anti-hunting crap, then, yeah, we might be able to work on some other stuff like that. Because I, I also I view, too, like issues around technology. OK, so issues around trail cam use. Mm-hmm. Like, is it to the point where we need to where, where hunters would decide among themselves that we need to get a grip on trail cam use or hunters would decide among themselves that we need to get out ahead of drone use right i feel that those like that those debates are should enjoy like some kind of like sanctity or they should be allowed to play out in some sort of natural way rather sure. than rather than teeing them up or framing them up in sort of this anti rolling him into this sort of like anti-hunting conversation. Because I think that there are times we're going to come up with where we're going to be self-limiting technologies in advancement of like the betterment of wildlife in general. Sure. Right. And we might make those decisions and someone on the outside may be like, oh, that's an infringement on a hunter's ability to conduct his business or that's you dictating how a hunter should go. But we're already doing that anyways. We decided a long time ago not to fish with dynamite. Mm-hmm. So at the time we decided that we're not going to fish with dynamite anymore. Can you bonk cormorant with dynamite? I don't know if that doubt, I doubt they're using Cal it. wouldn't like that. Punt guns. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. at, the, at the end of the day, it comes down to management, right? So when we're kind of in these things, w- our position as an organization is leave it in the hands of the biologist. Yeah. Give him his tool chest. Let him have it. Don't take trapping away. Don't take baiting away. Don't take dogs away. Don't do this. Let him have it. If the biologists say, hey, we can't sustain this with, you know, the dog harvest, we're going to limit this or bait is being too effective or having scopes on this. Leave it up to those individual biologists in those regions 
to do it. Give them their full tools, though. We're trying to keep the animal rights movement from taking those tools away. Yeah, that, that's a that's a you did a much better job of expressing what I'm <laughs> what I'm trying to say than I did. But yeah, it's yeah. um it's sort of like looking at where's the what are the motivations. What are the motivations of who's, you know, providing this idea? Like, for instance, it's Montana has never had bear hunting for hounds. They've never had bear hunting with bait. That didn't come from the animal rights movement. That came from just traditional use practices and a deep legacy in that state. I would imagine that you don't look there and think that they're making a mistake, right? It's just like a thing that's always been. That's right. They have a, that's, that's they have a successful bear program, and it's just how it is in that state right yeah absolutely i mean that's that that's where the, the managers come in and make those decisions and 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 that gets back to the idea that that wildlife management decisions are are wildly local too right you know it can vary wildly from from you know from the the, the helena valley of of of, uh, of montana down to the Bitterroot, right you know the, you get over into idaho you get over into washington state there are different cultures there's different practices there's different heritages and, and then you think about going from Alaska to Florida or from Maine to California, I mean, you're talking about vastly different habitats, vastly different cultures. Yeah, there can definitely be uh, differences there. And you just use that, like, that toolkit mm-hmm. idea, the management tools. Um, and that's another thing with this, this, like, very hotly debated Federal Preserve thing in Alaska, where Alaska has state authority to use certain management practices where they see fit. Yeah. And then... The, the federal government comes in and says, we're going to remove certain tools that you have access to on specific pieces of land. And in the public telling of this, they would act as though these practices are rampant when, in fact, the state usually decides not even to use the tool anyway. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing, the whole Alaska preserves and uh, refuge stuff, if you watch HSUS, Center for Biological Diversity and all these guys blow it up, it makes it sound like. Everybody's hired a plane. We're shooting, shooting grizzlies from planes. Well, we're, we're going into, into dens. Uh, dens and gassing them all. All of these things were extreme management techniques for the state biologists to use in case they needed it. And often indigenous groups. And, in, and, in, mm-hmm. and some of the indigenous stuff. Um, but from the state side, one, one wolf and the uh, pups were killed in like 2009 used it once yeah they killed they killed the uh adult wolves found the den that had pups in it and because they were in a high uh can't remember which disease it was area they had to kill the pups they couldn't take the pups and relocate them or put them in a zoo or anything it was distemper i think it was and so they had to kill them that's the one time these tactics had been used and hsus and cbd and everybody else blew it up like sportsmen go up there and you know, are drinking beer and shooting out of a plane and crawling in dens with them and Which is, strangling pups and stuff. And I know if I have hunted extensively in Alaska, I know quite. I have never heard of uh, someone using the contested practice. In fact, when it came like like that, you can kill a swimming caribou. Yeah, most places you cannot. I think there's two game. There, there's two portions of there's portions of two game management units north of the Brooks Range, where it's a traditional practice with indigenous Alaskans to head off caribou at pinch points where they're crossing rivers. Yeah, Hunt, I, they've hunted them that way for probably thousands of years. And, but they sell it like, oh, now um, that's going to be going on here. When it's a toolkit, like the state of Alaska has, has the ability to open up that method of take, which they have chosen 
not to do across about 99% of the state. And there's a couple places where they allow it because of traditional use practices. And most of but it the is. way it's sold in the mean in the media is that there's this last little bastion where you cannot shoot swimming caribou from a boat. So it goes back to our message and messenger that we were talking about. That's exactly what they're doing. They're spinning it and spinning the PR and they get a lot because emotional arguments and emotional things work great in the press. But they get a lot a of good press example of the way this information came out could have been delivered in a hell of a lot better way with much better context it's where a, it, it we could have been delivered in a way to where the other side would wouldn't be able to take that information and run with it the way they have because i'm getting this question all the time too and well yeah it's, it's a, well they're these, good at what they do yeah, yeah, yeah they know. are and and they have a ton of money and they have a ton of media uh, connections and so they can put this out there and once it's out it takes off i mean you watch it go viral and it's hard for us to turn around and flip that you know like what do we say well you know nbc ran probably the worst article about the story and then corrected i like to think it was because of this digital radio program went out and uh which is i'm joking uh and then did and then did a some weeks later did a very sophisticated Look at, yeah, a very sophisticated follow-up at it, and I was like, I was impressed with it, that article. It, that was a good article, and that's about as balanced as we're going to be able to get as a hunting community. Because the first did one they did was, they even threw in, like, bacon and donut. It cracked yeah, me up. Like, yeah. It was just like, they tried to act like, and they tried to tie it into wild stuff, so, and yeah. just act like it was, a, it was a war on predators, right? And then they followed up and did a thing where they went and actually, like, looked at where the practices are used, how they're used, an explanation of the management tools. Well, it's a very complex issue, more complex than management in the lower 48 even, because you're dealing with, like you said, indigenous and subsistence use, which is spelled out in state law. It's, there's, there's, there's different parts of Alaska's entry to the, to the union that it spelled out some of these things that, that, that Congress has ratified, right? The Statehood Act provides for a sustained use, a sustained yield policy. The, 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 you have a NILCA out there that also has these 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 inroads that, that allow for certain practices to take place. And the state is is supposed to manage wildlife to allow for those subsistence hunters. And so you complicate the issue of just trying to understand what are the practices we're talking about and then what did the Obama administration do to change the long running practice? You know, this is this is a great idea of the toolbox, right? The state of Alaska had these tools in their toolbox up until twenty fifteen. When the Obama administration changed and stripped it away, and they were mostly never happening. That's right, never. That's right, and so it was. It was a, a vast federal overreach in terms of the federal government for the first time in this instance saying we're going to sever the tie between the state management of these species on federal lands, and we're going to take that back and say, you know, we just don't like those practices. Those practices are distasteful, and you're not allowed to do them anymore. These are practices that have been reserved. But, but for the even state. though they're still able to do it on eighty-four percent of the state, that's right. And they're able to, but are generally not doing the practices in eighty-four percent of the state. That's right. And so the biggest issue for us, the reason why we sued over that whole issue, or the reason why we petitioned the the Department of Interior to undo the rule, and and they've started that process, was in doing so they vastly changed the definition of predator management. Right. A lot of this comes down to the predator management side of things. Whether or not you can hunt wolves in the summer, or whether or not you can hunt bears over bait or, like you said, the caribou issue where they're swimming, that kind of thing. Um, but the predator side is the big one because they changed the defini definition of predator management in their rule in 2015, and they changed the way it was applied, right? Before, the state talked about these intensive predator management issues, right? Those things that a lot of folks are going to find troubling in the media. But it's not just the idea that you're going to go out there and, and take a bear or take a wolf. But they expanded that to mean that any time you change 
the rules, that could be viewed as an expansion of predator management. That's in violation of federal rule now, and you can't do it. So what it, what it, in, in essence, and this is a silly example, but if the Board of Game in Alaska said all of a sudden, you know what, we're going to extend the summer wolf hunting season by one minute, one minute, now you're in violation of federal rule. You, that's, that's how hamstrung they would be. You couldn't change anything that would have an impact on expanding predator management. Yeah. And so you, you've seen these things, you know, it's, it, it's also important to, to understand that, you know, yeah, 83% of the state, if, if, if that's the number, you, you can already do these practices on. But you're talking about this was Fish and Wildlife Service land and this was Park Service preserved land. It's 97 million acres. If that were a state, it'd be the fourth largest state in the country. Just it'd be bigger than Montana. Yeah, that's a good way to express it. I mean, it's a huge, huge, vast area of land that we're talking about here. And you're, you're really talking about the idea that, and why the lower 48 guys should care, because you have the federal government stepping in and saying, you know what, state, we got this. No longer, you're, you're no longer in charge of management. We're going to take it over. We're going to, we're going to do what we think is right. But in the case of Alaska, it's we're going to take it over without being able to demonstrate you that you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, 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 you you can't you can't point to. They weren't able to point to a mismanagement. They weren't able to point to a collapsing population. There was like nothing to back it up. I could see if some if a state had some policy that was running some species into the ground or driving them toward an ESA listing. But in here you have a state that, like, really the only here you have a state where they have uh, wolves and grizzlies on whatever ninety nine percent of historic range. So it's like in absence of a problem, you're creating an oversight issue. It'd be like coming into it's a, a solution town. without a problem. Yeah, it'd be like coming like, like I've I've expressed this before. It'd be like coming into a city where there's not like a high incident of traffic accidents. They have a like pretty safe traffic record. It's in line with everything else. But you come in and say like, you know what? If your road passes a federal building, I want you to change all of the traffic laws there, kind of arbitrarily, but just because that's how I would like to see it happen. And and it's your responsibility to manage that and go and and make that clear. Not that there's a problem. Right. The funny part about yeah. all this, and that's a fantastic point. The funny part about this is in the environmental assessment that the federal government did, they actually, and I'll read this to you, they actually admit that this policy could cause extirpation of certain species. Under some conditions and in some locations, this may include either predator, prey, or both populations declining to a point that they are below the threshold for detection through current monitoring techniques, or they may actually become locally extirpated. They're actually admitting that that policy of changing the predator management stuff could cause some prey species to become extirpated. Yeah, like you would probably see with trying to recover desert big, uh, reopening an old one, trying to recover desert bighorns in Arizona. Yeah. If you lost the, the if you lost the lion hunting management tool, you're probably going to be kissing goodbye. Yeah, or if you lost water gosslers. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Yep. You're like you're kissing goodbye little isolated desert bighorn populations. Yep. So are you for wildlife or not? Exactly. Because, all right, my last question. Um, I already know the answer, so I want to put it out there. <laughs> Is there a potential truce? Okay. Let's say we get rid of bear hunting. Let's say hunters come to the table. We're like, okay, we'll make a deal. We'll quit hunting bears, quit trapping beavers. We're cool, right? That's Earth, the end. Of, everything that's, but cormorants. That's the end. That's the end of this whole thing, right? Yep. Let's shake on it. Is there a truce to be made? No, we lose. We're the only side giving anything up. You know, it, it can't be a truce when, when you know, you're, you're going to say, well, let's just let's have a compromise, right? Instead of the ten things I want to do, we're just going to do five of them. We're going to find five methods. Well, we've lost that now. You, you can't get that back. The truce to them is that there's no more hunting. 
Like that's where this is headed. Yeah. yeah. What what do we get out of that? I mean, the, you know, we're basically negotiating against ourselves, and that's the, that's the great challenge here. We have to win every time. They only have to win once. If they win one out of ten every ten issues they put out there, they're still moving the ball down the field. You know, it's this death by a thousand cuts approach. They're going to try stuff all over the place, and they're going to see what sticks. And they're going to take their victories where they can get them. And they're going to put them on the shelf, and we're not going to get that back. Just like we didn't get mountain lion back in, in California. Like, just like we're not going to get bear hunting back in California, likely. Once you lose these, these opportunities, they're gone. So for the other side, I, I don't believe there's anything to be had there. For them, why come? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see it. Well, they came into Washington State, and they banned the use of hounds and hounds and bait. Yeah. Then they came back 10 years later and banned trapping. Yeah. So they're not happy. They just want to take it away, and they want the world to run according to their belief system. I think it gets back to the idea you hit on upon earlier, right? It's that they, they want to point to these inhumane and barbaric and cruel, whatever whatever terms they use to define the, the, the method of take as the reason why they're doing this, right? We're only doing it because it's the most inhumane forms of hunting or it's the most inhumane take. But the truth of the matter is they're, they're not okay with it at all. You know, they're, they're not okay with the idea of, you, know, you hear about shooting a bear out of a tree or shooting a lion out of a tree. If you shot that bear at 800 yards across a canyon, they'd have a reason why they're opposed to that. They have circular arguments. It's all circular arguments. It's either if you're using a primitive weapon, then it's a primitive weapon, and you're going to higher chance of injuring that animal and getting away and it's suffering. If you use high tech where you've got a scope and you're dialed in, you can shoot it at 100 yards or 1,000 yards. Now you're not ethical and you're not fair. So it doesn't matter what you do or say. They have an argument it's got to work kind of good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and it's and the the average deer hunter needs to care about these fringe benefit or these fringe sports just as much because one, those animals eat the deer and the elk and everything else. But when they finish with that, they're coming after the bow hunters. They had a big thing in the '80s and early '90s mm-hmm. where they went after bow hunting, and they've been pushing, looking at that again. You know, so it's. They'll go after the bow hunting and say it's, uh, you know, not ethical. And then the muzzle loader, and they'll just keep chipping away. They don't care. It's like negotiating with terrorists. Cal, uh, do, you, do you go ahead, uh, concluders? I'm guessing you want to get back into cormorants? Negative. Oh. No. No, no, no. That was just an example. <laughs> no, we've now stoned that bird. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the we just need to get to a spot where it's like we have kids that are growing up in non-hunting families wanting wanting to be the next kevin murphy you know wanting to be the next steven Rinella, and saying like hey these people are making a difference and they're contributing um so you see a bright spot yeah i think there's there's a hell of an opportunity there you know and uh we have uh, a lot of media out there you know and you said like Oh, it's a war on predators, right? Man, I can sit down with Final Cut Pro and YouTube and make you a hell of a video that shows a war on predators, right? I'll, I'll, take, so, that. I'll take you up on that, Cal. Right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, man, I mean, it's, it's advancing, the, advancing the sport for the next generation. I'm, and I'm not saying at all losing anything, but, for example, like the Montana trapping issue. Right, you guys have a picture of it up here on your wall. I was like, that made my skin crawl. I hated it that it. I couldn't believe that my home state that would ever even come up. But when I started wading in on that issue and um, you know trying to, to do my own advocacy on it, there's a lot of folks out there that I didn't want to associate with that were some of the loudest voices. And how do we get 
everybody on the same page and say, hey, if you want this to exist, maybe you guys should not be talking the way you're talking or addressing the general public the way you're talking, you know? Mm -hmm. It's kind of both sides, right? Like, we can do better PR. We can be our our own worst enemies at times. At At the other end of the spectrum, we have to get off our high horse sometimes and meet in the middle like right so we got to protect these guys but we also can't condemn them so it's it's that meeting in the middle we both have to do a little both sides yeah the own worst enemy argument is one that it's a huge argument and it's one that uh warrants getting into and it's it's a difficult one it's a difficult one i think that there's a lot of people who uh you know there are a lot of well-meaning people who seem to support to, to provide a never ending stream of awful PR. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And oftentimes it's coming from a really cynical perspective where it's like, well, I'm going to shove it in their face. Yeah. And they think they're or, doing well. They think they're doing good. But yeah. a lot of times it hurts. Or yeah. a lot of times it's uh, selfish. You know, we've seen people construct drama in order to get the hunting community to rally around yeah. them, and now they're getting financial benefit out of it and they yeah. call us and like hey we're getting harassed by anti-hunters how do we do this well it's pretty easy make your page private <laughs> quit, quit quit jumping around quit and court, people. quit courting I mean, dis- I, inviting disaster yeah, i've been doing this for 20 years i used to troll PETA's message boards and i still haven't got a death threat yeah. <laughs> message boards you just you just showed your yeah, age I'm there <laughs> kevin murphy you got any final thoughts yeah yeah i know you haven't had an opportunity to say a whole lot kevin i know you're just absorbing absorbing but do you have any um and i've been doing some technical issues too my man here. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, a lot of these topics that we've talked about uh, do affect uh, the small game hunters in the central southern states. A lot head to the north uh, in the summer, in the early fall. Hunting season opens up early. We have those hunting opportunities. 2013, I was in Maine uh, grouse hunting with some friends of mine from West Virginia and Virginia. Uh, we saw the bear issue firsthand up there. Uh, I was concerned. Um, I called back home through the League of Kentucky Sportsmen, asked them to put some, show some support up there, try to send some funding to help fight this issue. Uh, oh, there's, a, there's a case example of what I was talking about earlier. Yes. And um, <clears throat> uh, we have bear hunting in the state of Kentucky. For a long time, we, we didn't have it. Just when the last, like, 10 years... I personally penned, wrote the resolution so through our sportsman club, the LBL Sportsman Club, so that you could hunt bears in Kentucky with dogs. They were starting to become a, a, a nuisance in there. They had a, a gun hunt, slight slight gun hunt in there, but finally we wrote that resolution. We, we took it through the League of Kentucky Sportsmen. They presented it to the wildlife biologists. They reviewed it, says there's no problem hunting hunting bears in Kentucky with, with dogs. No kidding. That's yes. something that happened? Yes. Yes. I wrote the, like I said, the resolution. We have a sportsman club, and if you're a member of that, you can you can look at the game laws. If you want to try to help help adjust those where you're a hunter, you think that, that they may need to be tweaked a little bit. So, you know, it's got to go through a chain. You just don't write something and, and, and send it in. You get the support from from uh, uh, the League of Kentucky Sportsmen, they take it and, and, and hand it over to the state fish and game uh, department. They review that resolution and say yay or nay, whatever, and then they'll have a vote on it. That's some good Kentucky elbow grease right there, man. We've Getting got in it. there, 
learning what the law is, learning how to work within the system, engaging with sportsmen, engaging with biologists. Uh, learning all about stuff you know our our state motto (laughs) and and what we've talked about here is you know on our flag is is united we stand divided we fall Uh and you know as sportsmen outdoorsmen fishermen you know we need to stay together we do not let need to let the antis fragment our hunting and fishing and outdoor activities join a join a sportsman club locally Pay attention to what's going on, just like you guys have discussed, but be involved because there's going to be residual effects from these negative laws that impact hunting and fishing that can trickle down to you personally. Put in some elbow grease, not just sit back and bitch. Yes, Kentucky elbow mm-hmm. right. grease. I like it. I love that thing that you were up doing a little diplomacy. Mm-hmm. You were in Maine, made some connections, came home and said, hey, fellas. I, I, I didn't. I, I did it from there. I saw, uh, yeah, some I, of the, I saw some of the newspaper articles, the uh, 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 television ads. Um, I had been up there a time or two, so I had a friendship, a bond with uh, the people that I was hunting with up there. We stay in a, a typically a bear hunting lodge that just rents that out to us during some of his off season. When you're hunting birds. When we're hunting birds. Yeah. Uh, I've been with some of the bear hunters up there. Uh, just as a sidekick to blow the horn. And, um, you know, there's a great bunch of people up up in Maine there. And just like I said, you know, we just cannot let them fragment our hunting and fishing opportunities out there. Because if if they do, it's just going to all crumble one of these days. That's right. Yanis? Speaking uh, about how we can be proactive, you mentioned that there's a couple states, and I don't know if I caught it right, but there's a couple states that have it in their state constitution where you can't have ballot initiatives mess with wildlife management. So can we get that in more states? Yeah, they're, they're not that clean. It's not that it's not just a flat out prohibition, but there's things you can do. Like you look at Utah, it has a supermajority requirement vote on those type of issues. So instead of the 50% plus one voter, you have to get to 60 or 63 or 65% or, or a higher percentage, mm. which makes it all that more difficult. Um, there's other things you can do in, 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 in law and in the constitutional law that, that would provide barriers, but they're very tough to get done. Um, they're tough to get done in a manner that actually provides some teeth that provides protections, right? Because getting back to, to Cal's question earlier, they don't go after banning bear hunting. They're going after a specific mean and method. So you have to be very careful on how you write those protections. And, and, and when you look at like these right to hunt uh, amendments, when you look at constitutional protections, does it actually provide the, the necessary level of protection, or are we just making ourselves feel like, oh, they can't harm us? Mm. And so it, it's a challenge. There's there some stuff we can do. Um, we've looked at uh, we looked at some stuff in Maine. We looked at some stuff in Montana after both of those campaigns to try to suggest changes to either law or constitutional law that would uh, provide some of those protections. But oftentimes, you're, you know, you're talking about changing the Constitution. You're talking about running another ballot issue campaign yourselves. So you're still talking about raising a whole bunch of money, yeah, spending a couple of years putting a campaign together, and then going head-to-head with HSUS or whoever else on the animal rights side would, would want to come to the table. And so if you, if you really write one of these things and, and push one of these campaigns that would put some teeth in and put some real protection in, you're going to see the other side spend money because they know they're gonna, that's going to be a it's, it's going to be a barrier to them coming back in the right. future. Right. It, we it could be a win, like you said, you could put it on your shelf and be like, all right, we got that one. And it's it's you know it's it you know you look at we use Maine as the example and we we beat this to death today, but like like Kevin said, you know, their group sent money up from Kentucky. 
that, that $2.3 million we raised was done at the grassroots level. There wasn't a $500,000 check coming from Washington, D.C. like HSUS had. It was done $25 here and $1,000 there and $500 here from houndsmen out west and guys in Kentucky and people in Minnesota and all over the place. We raised that money grassroots style. It took, it took a year and a half to raise the $2.3 million. We beat the bushes. We beat the snot out of the folks in Maine trying to raise that money. Those guys gave everything they had. You have guys up there who, are, who aren't making a ton of money giving you what they can give you. And so to turn around on the heels of winning after that and come back to them and say, yeah, now we got to do it again a second time to go put the constitutional protection in there, that's tough, man. I'll tell you what, it's really, really tough to get those people to be fired up and engaged a second time when they've just given you the, the shirt off their back to try to protect their way of life. Yeah, yeah. And they so, want to get back to deer hunting. They want to get back to deer hunting. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Is that your concluder, Yanni? Yeah. Go ahead. All right. Well, for me, I guess I'll expand on what Kevin was saying. And, and, and I really truly believe like we're an inflection point in the hunting community that we're going to see over the next 10 to 15 years. You know, we've got this whole generation of people that are growing up today who are living in a world and they're becoming voting age and they're of voting age right now who are living in a world where their entire lives they've never known wildlife to be in peril. Right. We didn't have to restore turkeys. We didn't have to restore deer. They, they were on the landscape. They can't see back to the, the, the reasons why we started some of these programs, the reasons why groups like RMEF or NWTF or any of these other great conservation organizations, why they were founded in the first place. And so in their mind's eye, we've got wildlife everywhere. We don't need to worry about management. We don't need to worry about hunters. Well, you, know, you, talk, you talk about the, the distinction between how do hunters play into the management side of this thing? Those folks have no idea. They just know wildlife exists. At the same time, you're marrying that against the idea of the folks that have, have created these concrete jungles where wildlife no longer lives are the ones who are now having the power to dictate wildlife management laws and rules and regulations. And a lot of times the voting comes down to those individuals. So I really feel like we're at that inflection point where over the next 10 to 15 years, we've got to stick together. There's going to be more attacks. There's going to be more issues. There's going to be a need to be involved in these issues and, and, and keep the wolves at bay. Otherwise, we're going, to, we're going to face a drastic future, and it's going to be a drastically different landscape where I, I, can't, I, I struggle to think what the future looks like in that scenario. So I, I do think we're at that inflection point. You know, it's, it's, it's a theme we've talked about a lot today, but how do we protect that future? How do we, how do we ensure that this, this great experiment that we've been going through for the last 100 and 120 years lives on? And if not, what's that future going to look like? What's the future of conservation look like if, 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 we, if, you, if you sever that bond, if you break break that tie between the goose that lays the golden egg, right? You get rid of hunters and the conservation dollars they're pouring into, into these states, into the federal government. What are we going to do? I like it that you mentioned National Wild Turkey Federation in that conversation because here, on, you know, on top of the billion dollars annually that goes into conservation from guns, ammunition, sporting goods, equipment, fishing equipment, and then the other, you know, I don't know, billion some dollars from tags, licenses, and stamps that goes into funding wildlife at the state level, in every state at the state level. A group like the NWTF, I think in the history of that organization, they've put just slightly south of $500 million in the wildlife habitat. Yeah. Yeah, we've done a lot of great work with those guys over the years. It's, it's an amazing organization. Yeah, it's like you, and then like, you look at that, like the impact of the habitat work that has gone to wildlife, and then you compare that to what an animal rights group is actually 
find an animal rights group that is actually working to do the the, the work on habitat. Yeah. Like what is going to the thing that's going to measure the success of wildlife in this country? The success, the future success of wildlife in this country is going to come down to inhabit. It's going to come down to habitat. Yeah, that's what it is. It's not the one by one numerical. It's not the one by one mechanical removal of animals. Is not the issue. That issue is, is there a place for them to exist? And hunters through mandatory spending and man in a self imposed taxation system, and then voluntary spending are driving the habitat programs in this country. Oh, absolutely. And, and don't it's like leave, that's where wildlife <clears throat> will live. And, and we'd be remiss to not mention target shooters in that as well. You know, you look at some of our business partners are spending, what was it, Vista spends $87 million last year in, 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 in PR money. Yeah. I mean, that, that's yeah, that. Pip, pip, not PR like public yeah, relations, yeah. PR no, like Pittman-Robertson. That's right, funds, excise yeah. tax dollars are coming back into conservation. You know, it, yeah, recreational shooters versus mm-hmm. your hunter, right. and they pitch into that fund a, a heck lot. of a lot more. Yeah, it's funny that like, uh, like uh, you know, some old granny living in the city somewhere, and she's got like a pistol in her nightstand <laughs> is paying for conservation. But it's like, un- un- like yeah, unknown, yeah, unbeknownst to her, she's paying for wildlife conservation. <laughs> New Jersey cat lady who's against bear hunting wants to pay for conservation too. So yeah, we'll take the money though. I'll tell you yeah. what. <laughs> Go ahead. We covered a lot of ground. Dude, lots of ground. And uh, Florida to Alaska. Yep. California to Maine. Maine to California. And we just scratched the surface on so many different things. And, and that's what's fun about these conversations because they're, they're always eye-openers for folks. Um, these heavy subjects, it's, it sucks to think about, you know, because it's, it's what we all love. Everybody here loves getting outdoors and just loves enjoying that time outside. But there's so many things everything is so complex the basic premise behind you know what we need from people is involvement you know we need every deer hunter out there involved we need every duck hunter out there involved they've got to understand the bigger picture of these issues they've got to look beyond their back 40 uh, beyond their immediate hunting season and and see what else is out there see those threats understand them Uh, and they've got to get engaged you know like like kevin said hey Start your sportsman's club. Join there. Get involved at the local level. Know what's going on in your own state. Know what's going on in your neighboring states and within your regions. And pay attention to those things. Um, obviously, we want them to become members of the Sportsman's Alliance. We talk about, you know, if we just had 1% of every licensed buying hunter out there to be a member of this organization, I mean, that's an absolute game changer. Our mission, protecting and advancing hunting, fishing, trapping, right? We spend most of our time on that protecting side. What can we do on the advancing side? How many more states can we get involved in with, with families of field legislation? How many more um, you know, youth programs can we put together? Can we get people out there, not only youth, but young adults who want to learn how to hunt, who want to understand, hey, I, I kind of want to know a little bit more about where my food comes from. And hunting seems like a pretty organic process for me to get involved in and do those types of things. So how many more advancing side of things can we get involved in if hunters start getting more engaged? And we, you know, we're the key to all this. If we want wildlife to continue, it's going to come down to habitat and it's going to come down to our involvement. So we've got to get, I guess, a little more uh, outside of just being a selfish hunter. And we've, we've done that throughout our history, you know, I mean, to Evan's point where 
we've got people who've grown up in a generation where they haven't seen wildlife in peril. Turkeys are pretty prominent. Deer are everywhere. Um, you know, we need that more involvement, that more engagement, so that we can continue those things. We can have them in perpetuity for future generations to get out there and enjoy. Amen. Yeah. Well, I don't say that very often, but there you go. <laughs> uh, first of all, I'd just, just like to uh, thank you all for coming out and uh, having us on the show. It, uh, it's huge for us. We're a small organization. I mean, there's 15, 20 of us, and that's it. You know, we get overshadowed by a lot of guys, uh, bigger groups. Um, but I've been involved with Sportsman's Alliance. I've been here for four years almost. But going back 10, 15 years when I was at ESPNOutdoors.com and editor at Outdoor Life, um, and this is a solid organization. I mean, doing the work that needs done without getting the headlines, don't have a huge PR department to push it out and, uh, and do it. And like Sean said, if we had more help and had 1% of hunters, you know, we could do so much more. When, it, when you're talking lobbying, lawsuits, and ballot initiatives, it all comes down to money. That's what it is, you know. And it sucks, that it's that, but it that's what it takes to win these things, and that's where the fight is. And the other side, HSUS, CBD, Sierra, all these guys have tons and tons of money that they can just drive us all out of business piece by piece. So we all need to stick together, look ahead, and, uh, you know, take the fight to where they're at. And you guys have a regular annual membership program? Yeah, if, if you go to sportsmansalliance.org, it's right there at the top under Alliance Membership. Just click on there and join. The basic membership level, it's $35 a year. You know, it's it's right there. So it goes up from there. There's all that's kinds. helpful. Yeah. And that's then there's clubs. You yep. know, your sportsman's clubs, you want to be part of it, you can do that. Uh, we business partners. There's anybody that wants to be a part of the Alliance, we're, we're allies. Yeah, and what's I mean, the public? Sorry, what's the publication you guys put out, and how often? That's our uh, that's our newsletter that goes out to the members. It's uh, every two months, and so we call it just Sportsman's Monthly. Every two months, and so kind of yeah. big picture stuff in the feature well, down to the legislation and members and the businesses that support us. It's worth thirty five bucks a year just to have someone keep you apprised of what's going on, man. Yeah. We'll yep. take we'll take more than thirty five too. If you <laughs> <don't forget. laughs> No, I understand, but it's it's a way for people to to no, it's it's easy dip I mean, in a toe, man. Yeah, you think about that. It's it's a pack of broadheads, right? That's right. It's thirty five bucks. It, it's, it's good insurance on the future of our our way of life, right? You're talking about trying to try to quantify what our group does and the protection aspect of who we are. We're you know we're not like RMEF or NWTF in that they've got a critter, they've got a, a a tangible item you can wrap your arms around. You're doing habitat work. You're restoring a population of a species. We're kind of selling insurance. You know, we're kind of selling a protection way of life. We're like the fire department, right? Nobody wants to pay taxes. Until your house is on fire, you want to pick up the phone and call somebody who's going to come help you. Yeah, yeah. And so we don't have those tangible items. We're not doing the conservation work and the, and the habitat work that these groups are doing. They're doing a fantastic job of that. That's not us. What we're doing is protecting the way of life that that supports. And so for us, it's a little bit different argument. We're in the same space. Yeah, but we're coming in to put fires out, man. That's right. So we're, we're coming at it from the other side. Yeah. We spend a lot of time pushing... Um, and I will continue to do so, pushing those, you know, the, advancing the agenda of wildlife groups, advancing the agenda of habitat groups. And that stuff is extremely important, but I think it's also important to stay to stay in the game and stay in the fight on, on 
protection of rights. That's right. Protection of hunter rights. Man. Yeah, we can't advocate like, that space. Yeah, it's a two it's a two pronged battle that everyone that hunts and fishes needs to needs to pay attention to. All right, guys, I appreciate you giving us so much of your time. Thanks for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Guys, this is an episode that Stephen Ranella, the meat eater over at the Meat Eater podcast on episode 123, was talking with the Sportsman's Alliance guys. And on this episode 123, they get into uh, talking about Arizona and the recent wildcat potential ban um, when uh, that erupted HSUS. Anyway, this is going to be a good episode, I think, from a third party explaining a little bit about some of the issues uh, that us as sportsmen uh, face. And I think Steve did a great job, as always, kind of going through the issues. And um, these guys are buddies of mine. Steve and Giannis are buddies of mine. And I asked them for permission to play this Arizona portion talking about uh, the HSUS, this latest um, potential threat that we have as sportsmen. And I, I, I think it's important that uh, the sportsmen pick up in this episode that, you know, we all have to stay together. And just because this was an Arizona issue uh, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned about issues you, you'll hear. If you listen to the whole episode uh, over at their uh, website, uh, the Meat Eater uh, dot com, uh, you'll understand that there was a big fight in Maine. There's fights in lots of different states, and us as sportsmen need to support everybody across the board. So even if you're, you know, you're not even a lion hunter, but you're a deer hunter, the lion hunter hunting directly affects the deer hunting. Um, if you're, you're you're not up on predator issues or what have you, it may affect the elk hunting in Colorado or or in Montana, or what have you. So anyway, this is a great episode. Meat Eater guys do a phenomenal job. Make sure to go to their website, uh, themeateater.com. Uh, go to their podcast. Check out their TV show, uh, their Instagram page. You can also listen and subscribe to their podcast on iTunes. Again, thanks to the guys over at The Meat Eater for letting me play this. I thought it was just, there was such good content that I wanted to replay that for you guys. Make sure to go over and check out their podcast. Uh, also, guys, in the show notes, uh, there's places where you can support the sponsors of this podcast. Uh, I'd like to thank the sponsors, Go Hunt Insider, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting, The Outdoorsman's, The Colburn Pyburn Team, and Canyon Coolers. Make sure to check out the show notes. Uh, I'm probably in the bush right now in the middle of the Northwest Territories on my doll sheep hunt. I look forward to sharing all of the uh, stuff that went on during the hunt with you guys. So um, I'll talk to you when I get back. Thanks for listening.